Welcome to the Assemblage Wine Podcast. My name is Adam Shoemaker, and today's guest is a sommelier and someone that I met at the CIA. His name is Jun Chen. Jun attended the CIA, where he, pre- where he received a degree in culinary arts and hospitality management with a concentration in wines. Right before graduation, he was hired at Massa in New York City as a junior sommelier and was cl- quickly promoted to sommelier after two months. Within, a, within another six months, he was promoted again to head sommelier and buyer. After two years in this role, June received an opportunity to be on the opening team of WS, a restaurant opened by Wine Spectator and led by master sommelier Michael Engelman. Once the restaurant opened, June received a call from Massa and he was brought back to the company as head sommelier at Capo Massa, <laughs> where he is still currently working. During the pandemic, where New York City restaurants were closed, June and his girlfriend Megan started Happy Little Gatherings, which is a company that does small, private dinners, wine, and beer tastings. Also, about two months ago, June and his friend from high school reconnected and started a YouTube channel called June and Juice. Without further ado, June, welcome to the podcast. How are hey, you? Yeah, I'm doing just fine. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to to talk to you. It's been a long time. I think we only actually had um, one yeah, class together at CIA. Like six years. Um, yeah, I know it's crazy to think how long ago that was. Yeah. Um, but just kind of tell me about your experience at CIA and um, at what point, like, did you know from the beginning of your time there that you wanted to be front of house in a sommelier, or did that kind of no, come no, later? No. I definitely wanted to CIA like wanting to be like a master chef or something like that, you know, be on TV on the food network or whatever, like a lot of kids going into CIA do. And then you start cooking. It's, it's great. You go on extern, you're like actually working as a line cook doing like these 14, 16 hour days. And then you realize it's not as glamorous as you thought it would be. It doesn't pay as well as you thought it would. And then, I mean, I really only got really into wine once we had wines class, right? Like, we're like you're like 19 and sitting there tasting these wines and all the reds just smell like reds and then all the whites just smell like whites. But then you keep digging into it and studying and it's just so fascinating. And it's like this endless depth of knowledge that you could dive into. And that's really when I got into it, right? Like, like second to last semester of like your associate degree in I really fell in love with it. And then that's when I did the bachelor's with the concentration in wines. And yeah, that just decided my career for me. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, I think that I think everyone that I've kind of talked to in this podcast that went to CIA and, you know, I kind of asked that question, like, did you always love wine or is it something that came later? And everyone kind of goes back to, you know, the wines class and then, um, you know, kind of taking that a step further in bachelor's. Um, maybe I should reword that because I, I don't know many people who are 18 or 19 and want to become a sommelier. Um, <laughs> maybe there's someone out there, but probably not. Um, so then po- kind of just talking like post-graduation, you started working at Masa. Yeah. Uh, tell us about your time with the company. So I think uh, right before I graduated, about a month before I graduated, I went down for an interview and they're like when can you start i was like i don't graduate for another month but they're like we need you now so i had to start working saturdays and mondays because we're closed sundays and obviously bachelor's classes at cia is only tuesday and friday so after service on monday i would have to drive back up and i would get back to school at like 
4 a.m. when we had classes at like 8.30. So it was really tough at first. Like it's it's a really intense environment because Masa's, I think we have about 20, 24 seats. And so the front of house staff is fairly small. You're either going to be a SOM on the floor or a runner. And if you're a SOM, you're doing everything. So you're also captain, waiter, busser, everything, right? So it was really intense, super steep learning curve, especially when you're in a three Michelin star restaurant where the head chef or an owner is actually within the dining room cooking and watching your every single move, every single minute of the day. So it was really intense, um, but I had a really great mentor there, right? This David McGovern, he was formerly a sommelier at Le Bernardin for a number of years before he took over as beverage director at Masa and he gave me my start. Like it was, it was really great. I, I, I was really thankful because I obviously had no front of house experience, but he brought me on as a junior Psalm when I was fresh out of school. And I still look back on that. Like it was so amazing because the second day I was working, I got to taste DRC for the first time. It was a 14 Latosh. And that really opened my eyes to the world of wine, like actually in the field, opening these crazy bottles. And yeah, it's just been a crazy ride since then. Wow, that's insane. And I'm, I still haven't tasted anything <laughs> from DRC. It's, I've started collecting uh, this past year. And, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough through the restaurant to taste a lot of really cool wines. But um you know my my reps don't really bring yeah. me samples of drc and uh, i don't even think we can get that in indiana because we're such a small uh, market i don't even think they import to indiana um but you know after two months as a junior som you were promoted to a sommelier and then another six months you were promoted yeah. again to head som and buyer um can you tell us like a little bit about you know what you do as the head som and a buyer at yeah a that, restaurant it, it was a crazy write-up and a very quick write-up it was a very steep learning curve i was always just at the right time at the right place where somebody was leaving and taking over a different role and then like we had our beverage director leave and we had a new head som come in who was doing that role but he got promoted to beverage director and I became head som, like just out of nowhere, right? Um, being a buyer at the Michelin Star restaurant has a lot of perks. Being in the NYC market, you obviously get the best of the best wines, right? Like everything comes in New York. Um, I got to taste whatever I wanted with any of the reps because we had such a large budget and we could basically purchase anything for the restaurant because we could sell wines that were up to I would say the most expensive wines on the list are like 40 grand or so. And it was really hard, like some really long days. And the great things were like all the perks that came with being the head salmon buyer, like being invited to events and tastings and portfolio tastings. But did a lot more hours, got a lot of that pressure of actually looking at the numbers and keeping the books right because when you're just a som you're only concerned with selling the bottles for that day because you're only concerned with whatever commission or tips you would be making but when you're in charge of the program you're under so much scrutiny from management and especially when chef masa is looking at the numbers because he's right there so the pressure was really really high and honestly that is i would say that's why i was only there for about 
two-ish years because you get burnt out really quickly from that. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, just I've I've only worked in, and it wasn't even Michelin star, but the the bar I worked at, and I was just the bartender. Um, and the amount of pressure that right. I was under um, was crazy. So I can only imagine that being amplified by a hundred times. Um, and your, you know, your inventory probably costs if you have bottles that are forty thousand. Your inventory uh, that you have in stock is probably hundreds oh, of yeah. thousands of dollars. That you're trying to manage so um it was, it's crazy it was about half a million so even though our inventory wasn't even that yeah. big it was there were shelves that were like a hundred thousand you know like it's crazy yeah so people who are listening and are from valpo uh my expensive most expensive bottle is 340 dollars. after hearing forty thousand, um you know come on in and try the uh the 13 gaia spurs because it's a it's a bargain <laughs> That's yeah. that sounds like an awesome spot. And, you know, when when travel restrictions are lifted and, um, you know, I get some time off from the restaurant, I hope New York City is like my my top destination for for dining and stuff like that. So I'd love to go and yeah, and check it out. And, you know, just kind of talking about this year, because I know a lot's changed um, this year. Well, tw- in 2020 um, into 2021. <laughs> And a lot has changed in, in your career and a lot has changed in just hospitality all over the world, um, especially in big cities like New York City. I know that you and uh, your girlfriend, Megan, started right. Happy Little Gatherings. Um, what was kind of your guys' inspiration uh, for starting it? And what, just what so kind of Happy Little Gatherings offer? was definitely more of Megan's um, brainchild than it was mine. She previously worked in events management for Union Square Hospitality Group for just about, I would say, two months before the pandemic hit. And then she was like, go, because obviously events aren't happening at all. That division really doesn't exist anymore. But she really wanted to expand on that, right? So Happy Little Gatherings is more based out in Nassau County, so out east in Long Island, where there's a little bit more room. And some of the things that we do are like private events. like um, So... Like, let's say you have little gatherings we could do hors d'oeuvres and do wines, mostly outdoors. And we do also do some beverage classes. So like wine classes or beer classes where we'll actually present four to six wines or beers, depending on what the client wants. And then we'll also do little pairings with that. Currently, we've actually pivoted it to more virtual events and tastings just because, I mean... COVID's gotten worse, which is kind of crazy thinking about how long this has happened. So we're not really comfortable actually showing up in person and being somebody's homes anymore. But previous to that, we probably did six or seven private dinners and tastings. Oh, that's great. And I I hope that once, you know, things get back to normal, you can kind of get back to doing those in-person tastings and, um, you know, just entertaining because that's kind of you know, big reason why a lot of people get in this industry is to, you know, show hospitality and entertain people and, you know, share our knowledge to people who might not know, or, um, you know, that's kind of the the best part. So I hope that you guys can. Yeah. That's that's really why we um, started that business because we were obviously without jobs because restaurants were closed for so long. So both of us just really wanted to be in hospitality when restaurants were closed. So we had to start our own thing because you're, you're just really itching, right? Like to interact with guests and put a smile on their face. 
that's really why we do what we do. And I know kind of just talking more about like the virtual side of, you know, almost hospitality and hospitality entertainment. I know that a couple months ago you started a YouTube channel called June and Juice. Um, Tell us kind of what inspired this YouTube channel and what are your favorite parts of like shooting videos? So June and Juice was really the idea of my friend Ralph and I'm kind of more of just the personality that's on it. So me and Ralph went to high school together number of years ago, we graduated in 2012 together. And back in high school, we both did photography as just like a hobby. We would like walk around with our DSLRs and just shoot or whatever, right? And be nerds about it. But he actually went on to college for that. And he owns his own photo studio. And we reconnected maybe three years ago. He came into Masa with his wife for their first anniversary. And we started talking again. And when he knew that, like, like um, with the COVID pandemic, that I was unemployed and whatnot, he hit me up and asked me if I wanted to do this because his business has also slowed down a lot. So we, we were just looking for something fun to do together. And we started June and Juice because I still wanted to teach people about wine and talk about wines. And I had I had happy little gatherings as an outlet, but it's not like we have clients all the time. So this is something that we could actually do on a regular basis. And it actually brought me back to cooking because I really don't cook that often or, or anything intricate since I've graduated at CIA. So it's been really fun. It's, it's been a steep learning curve as well, just because it's very nerve wracking to actually just talk to a camera with nobody around. I feel like it's worse than, me talking to guests like i feel very comfortable talking to strangers and guests at the restaurant but just talking to yourself is very hard yeah i i completely agree and when i started this podcast a couple months ago you know the first um couple episodes you know because i have to i obviously record the episodes and then i have to go back and edit them and um you know you i've just started kind of getting used to hearing my voice on recording Um, but it is really, you know, it is very uncomfortable. And like you said, I can go up to someone who I've never met before in a restaurant and talk wine and get them all set up and stuff like that. But then to, you know, sit in front of a microphone or sit in front of a camera and, you know, kind of tell maybe the kind of the, just the uncertainty of who's going to see it and, you know, you don't yes. really know who your audience is. So you're just kind of like laying it all out there for, you yeah. know, who knows to see. Um, but I've kind of gotten used to that. And I'm sure that, you know, now that you've recorded a handful of um, episodes that you're probably getting more used to, you know, talking to the camera yep. and, and tasting wine and cooking. Um, you know, I know I really enjoy watching them. Um, I just watched the uh, episode where you drink the, yeah, the whole bottle of Riesling. Um, and yeah, I'm definitely, I definitely need to see if I can get some of that Riesling, um, in cause I've been drinking a lot of, uh, of German Rieslings recently. And, uh, you know, there's some great ones in Northern Italy and, uh, you know, I've just been trying to really enjoy it cause it's such a yeah. versatile wine and, you know, really pairs with so many exactly. dishes and it's also I love just great German to drink by itself. Man. So. Well, next time where we see each other, we'll definitely have to to nerd out on some German Riesling. 
So speaking of Riesling, um, I'd love to just kind of pick your brain about, you know, what you enjoy drinking, what you enjoy selling. What are some of your favorite styles of wine, producers, wow. and or varieties? A lot to unpack. Um, I'm definitely a Burgundy boy. <laughs> I love Burgundy. I, I will drink Burgundy whenever I can. I definitely sell a lot of Burgundy at work. Like, I mean, you got, you got like the big names like Lefleur, Ramenet, Rouleau, Rousseau. I it's just really hard to love burgundy because you're selling it at work, but you can't afford it at home. Right. Like the wines that you want to drink, you can't buy like even Bourgogne Rouges and Bourgogne Blancs are like 50, $60 now. So recently I've been really exploring Pinot Noir and Chardonnay from other parts of the world. Um, I'm really loving some Sonoma Coast Pinot Noirs right now. Like uh, Hirsch makes really good wines. Recently, I've been trying to look at like South African Chardonnays, like from Hamilton Russell, which which I found like a 2013 bottle of for under $30 and is super delicious. Other things I'm really into, obviously, I'm really into German Rieslings, but German sex right now, like Peter Lauer's Riesling sect is so delicious and he has these releases from these really old vintages at really good prices like these these wines are on the leaves for like 20 years and they build all this great complexity like all that brioche toastiness that you find from champagne but you're getting those fruit and like petrol aromas from the riesling and those wines are super delicious wine as a hobby is really dangerous because you're spending so much of your paycheck on these wines, right? Because I love champagne and the champagnes I love are like $80 to a hundred dollars. And you're falling in love with these wines from work and just drinking them at home hurts, but it's so good. Like Ulysse Cologne, Charton Taille, all these grower champagnes are super delicious. And the, the prices just keep rising, which, which, it's bad for me at home, but good for me at work. So yeah, that's what I've been into. Yeah, I feel that. And I, I'm right there with you because, um, you know, I spend uh, a very large yeah. undisclosed amount on wine every month. Um, and it's, it's hard because I taste all these things and, you know, or I just, I read about certain wines and I, you know, just go out and like buy a couple bottles or a case or, um, you know, and I'm, right. I'm a sucker for like, I love Brunello's um, and I love yeah, Barolo's and sure. those are just keep getting more expensive. Um, so I've just, I've, this past year I bought a lot of, um, or not this past year, the past couple of months um, I've been buying like pre-released mm -hmm. uh, 2016 Brunello's, um, which is pretty cool. Cause it's, it's going to be one of those things that Typically, when I buy Brunello, yeah. I buy, you know, older vintage, so 2010 right. or, you know, 2005. Um, and that way, I can drink it right away if I want to. I could also, you know, put it in my cellar and age it more if I wanted to. But those are ready to drink. So this is kind of my first um, kind of go at buying super young right. Brunello and aging it myself. And, you know, maybe I'll open a bottle next year and see how it tastes and then open a bottle, you know, over the next, like, 10 years um, and just kind of see how things change and how the wine evolves. And I think that right. that's such a fun 
thing too is you know you're kind of watching these wines so change i was in, in montalcino i think um, was it two or three years ago maybe three years ago and there's a producer i need you to look into because they're super delicious it's called la magia m-a-g-i-a and okay i think they're like an organic producer but they're like up in the hill like within the forest and these wines are like super light and elegant for a Brunello and they're really, really good. So I need you to get into that Brunello. Yeah, I'll definitely look into that after after we get done recording because I'm, um, you know, I'm always trying to find, uh, you know, really cool small producers. And, you know, because my my biggest challenge at the restaurant um, is just kind of yeah. showing people new stuff, showing people wines that no one else carries um i've got a couple wines that aren't necessarily exclusive to our restaurant but yeah. i'm the only person in the whole sure. state selling it so that's kind of cool harder. um so and just your market when new you don't have as many importers eat. bringing as, as many wines and sometimes you have to convince your your distributors to actually carry these wines yeah and i've done that a couple times um you know i've tasted stuff in chicago and you know i come back to to indiana and i you know contact all my reps about whatever it is um and they're like oh no no we don't carry it no one carries it in indiana i said well what do we need to do to get you to carry it and uh, most of the times all i have to do is ask and uh, they don't even require me to buy you know x number of cases a year or whatever the case may be you know a lot of the times i just ask and sometimes it happens sometimes it doesn't happen but um my reps are pretty pretty good about you know passing it up to their bosses and getting yeah, I mean, you're doing their job for them, which is kind of cool. Um, so before we go, um, you know, it was great hearing, you know, some of your favorite wines and uh, I'm definitely going to look into uh, that Brunello and some of the other wines that you talked about. But before we go, is there anything that you want to plug? Um, anything more you want to share about your uh, YouTube channel or happy little gatherings where people yeah, just uh, check me out on YouTube. Yours? Find me at uh, June and Juice and do that. Well, it was it was so great catching up with you. Um, we'll definitely have to to talk more often. Um, I know we didn't really know each other all that well at CIA, but um, you know I think that we have you know some stuff to learn from each other, and you know it's also just good to to find someone who who loves German Riesling and who loves great champagne and just wants yeah, to catch me when you're really in cool New York stuff, City, man. So. Yeah. Well, great talk to you, June. Um, Thank you, Adam. And thanks for thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Assemblage Wine Podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it, and we're busy creating brand new content, including podcasts, blogs, and other uh, really awesome things for you guys to enjoy. If you or if you know of someone that would be great for the podcast, uh, please have them contact us uh, via social media or via email. Um, and, you know, we, we hope that we can continue to create really fantastic podcasts for you all. So cheers and have a great day.